The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer again. Loving Father, we come again with the Word of God open before us. And Father, we pray the Spirit of God will again teach us your Word, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. Father, instruct us, challenge us, equip us. Father, help us to understand what your Word teaches, that we might live lives that are pleasing. Father, we might preach the gospel more effectively and wisely. And Father, we will know how to apply the soothing balm of the word to those who are healing. And Father, also to bring the great news of the gospel contained in the word of God to those who need to hear. And Father, also to encourage and build up and strengthen the saints that we might walk, uh, we might walk together in a way that's pleasing to you. Father, we ask you these things, and we give thanks again for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. While we're looking tonight at, again, at what we believe as a church, and we're basing these studies on the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a Reformed statement of faith. It's what a lot of Reformed Baptist churches use. And it, uh, the, the topic tonight, the discussion tonight, is the law of God, how the law relates to and affects the Christian. Uh, it's one of those topics that there is a lot of disagreement about. Not everybody would agree, and, and some of you may not agree with some of the conclusions that we reach tonight. I'll be honest, as I worked through the London Baptist Confession of Faith and unpacked what it said, the one copy I had is written in the old language of 1689, and so sometimes you've got to translate from 1689 English into Aussie English, which can be a bit of a trick at times. And some of the things I struggle with, I, I'm not sure I 100% support what it says. I think I would say I, I believe they're right. I just want to see some better, more solid proofs if I could. But we're going to work our way through it. Uh, I did find a dictionary article in the uh, – it's called the Baker Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. That sounds like a big mule choker of a book, and it is indeed. And it has an article in there on the law and how the law relates to the New Testament believer. And uh, it was very helpful. The fellow who wrote it was a guy named Joe Sprinkle. And so uh, I wouldn't imply anything from his name whatsoever. It just happens to be the guy who wrote it. But uh, there we go. I want to take and read a couple of passages. I like to have a passage to stand on before I preach, but in some of these topics, you're going all over the Bible from cover to cover, and it's not always easy. But I want to give us uh, a couple of texts to kind of stand on, and, and we'll see them come up again and again as we read so or as we go through. So take your Bibles, flip all the way to the, the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read just a couple of verses here. And then we'll go to Romans 2, Romans 3, and Galatians 3. So Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 15, the Bible says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now take your Bible and flip to the front half and go, or the, sorry, the back half of New Testament, Romans 2, and we're going to read from verses 12 to 16. Romans chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 12 to 16. The word of God says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And I'm actually going to read just the next couple of verses too. But if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? And we'll leave it there. I'll explain that bit in a little bit later. Let's go over to Romans 3. Flip over the page. You probably have on the same page across Romans 3. And we're going to read from verse 19 to verse 31. 19 to 31 of Romans chapter 3. The word of God says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? 
Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now take your Bibles and flip over to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. I know I'm taking you to a lot of text, but I want to give us a good foundation before we start. Romans 7, and we're going to read from verse 7. I'm going to read down to the end of verse 12. Romans 7, 7 to 12. And again, the word of God says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what the law, sorry, what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead, lies dead, sorry. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We'll leave it there. I'm going to go over now to Galatians chapter 3. And this is the last one. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, and we're going to read from verse 18. To verse 24. Verse 18 of Galatians 3, the Bible says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisons everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or our, another word would be our schoolmaster or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I should read a couple more verses. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's or Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. Okay, here's where it gets fun. Fun if you like theology. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and the giving of that simple command. And the way, what I want to keep in the back of your mind as you're listening is this. It starts with one law, one command all the way back in Genesis. 
Because of that one command, man has written on his heart the law of God, and conscience is that faculty given to man which accuses, approves, and condemns given how we react to that law of God written in our hearts. Fast forward, and you've got the law given, and Moses, and Sinai, and all those commandments, and then you have the whole history of the Old Testament, and you wind up in the New Testament, and Christ came, and he fulfilled the law. And there's a difficulty added in here, because I don't know that any of us are Jewish by ethnicity. We are all Gentiles, to my understanding. Okay? If someone here is a Jew, please let me know after, so I'm actually curious about a few things. But I think we're all Gentiles. So the, the law was given to the Jewish people, and here we are as New Testament Christians. We've never been to Israel. I don't think anybody here has been to Israel. If you have, let me know. Oh, a couple of you have. Awesome. I'd love to go there one day. But, but for most of us, it's a lifetime and thousands of years removed from us. And one of the biggest struggles you hear about in the life of the faith as people begin to read the Bible is how does the law affect and relate to us? I, I was trying to help a young couple. Uh, they had a, a baby that was very sick. And this young lady was trying uh, to please the Lord, trying to read the Bible and understand. And she got under some teaching that started introducing the idea of keeping the law. And she was trying to keep the food laws and trying to keep the days and the festivals and all this stuff. And it was becoming this massive burden she was trying to carry. And that's one approach. I've heard other people say, you know, basically everything from Matthew onwards, the book of Matthew onwards concerns me. Everything prior to that it really doesn't have much to do with me. And I, I really don't spend much time there. So what you're telling me is about two thirds of your Bible is virtually unopened. Now, if you look at my Bible, you can see pretty clearly that the worn pages are all from about the middle point towards the end, because I spend most of my time uh, thumbing through the end pages. And I think most of us as Christians focus a lot of our time and attention on the New Testament. But the law does have something to say. The law's got a huge amount to say. There is an impact. There is a relationship between the Christian and the law. And we need to understand how it all works. It's part of what we believe. It's part of what the Bible teaches and there is Bible-believing, loving Christian brothers and sisters who will disagree about some of these things, uh, some of them quite emphatically. So we take it with grace. We do the best we can to understand it and work our way through it. So back in Genesis, God gave Abram a single simple command in the Garden of Eden so that as long as he lived in obedience to that command, which was, thou shalt not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he could remain in the garden, enjoying fellowship with God in holiness and righteousness. And when God gave him that command, all mankind at that point were in Adam, in their father and mother. In the sense, we all came from Adam. doesn't matter which way we go. All of us are connected, brothers and sisters, in some ex great extent of uh, generation jumping. But we go all the way back. Every single one of us came from Adam and from Eve, their original parents. When they were given that command and they accepted it and lived under it, the law of God was in a sense written on their hearts. Okay, so when the, the Satan come, or comes into the garden and begins to say to Eve, you know, has God really said? And what is the first she does? She stands there and she rattles off the law that she knew and understood. And her conscience was saying, this is what God approves. 
And all up until this point, there's no sin in the garden, so all their conscience can do is approve the things that they're doing which are correct. And you know the story. They take the fruit, they eat of it, and the Bible says in Genesis, uh, I think it's 3 and 8 thereabouts, their eyes were open, and they saw that they were naked, and all of a sudden their conscience rears up its big holy head and says, you've broken God's law. And their eyes, how did they also, they know that they were naked because their conscience was accusing them. And so quickly they cover up with leaves and God comes near and they run and hide. You know the story. And God then pronounces the first gospel to them. But out of that situation, every single one of us inherited that sin nature. We also had, now here's what the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith calls it. The perfect rule of righteousness is written on every single heart. So there's sin entered in because in Adam we all fell, right? And then men begin to live. And what are the first, the firstborn son, what does he do? He rises up and he breaks a command. He kills his brother. And then that goes on. You just see the wickedness of man. By chapter 6 of Genesis, God is saying, the wickedness of man, my spirit will not abide with them much longer. And he's grieved over what he has done. Because man has a sin nature, man has a conscience, that law of God written on his heart, he keeps constantly going against it. Well, again, you fast forward to, uh, I think it's 12, 1300. I'm guessing my dates are not accurate. Uh, God, centuries later, redeemed his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. And what do you have? It There is basically... Very simplistically, there's three basic ways to look at that law. Three categories, if you like. There is the moral law. That's the Ten Commandments. They're moral absolutes. They're unqualified. It's simply thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not. It's very bold, very clear. They are moral. Uh, how to put it? Limited is the wrong word, but it's it's the lowest moral standing that man can must have to be in fellowship with God. And, of course, it is also infinitely high for us because none of us can ever keep it or achieve it. That's the moral law. Those are the based on the unchanging character of God, and they are eternally binding. And we'll see how there's four laws or four words for how man relates to God and six words for how man relates to man. Then there's the ceremonial laws. Uh, they all attended to prefigure Christ. And when they, he came at his first coming and the completion of his work on the cross, most of those were put aside and done away with. Uh, this includes things like uh, the, the regulations for sacrifice, the food laws, the drink laws, the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath. Uh, Paul actually speaks in Colossians about don't let anybody judge you in regard to those things in particular. That would be the, the ceremonial laws. Then there's the civil laws, uh, the laws that relate very particularly to the historical people of Israel as they lived as a theocratic state under God. And they're not binding for the church today. Okay, But they're there. And I'm going to say this again. You've got to be really careful. I'm using three very simple categories to understand the law of God. But there's definitely some overlap. Uh, the Sabbath law is in the moral law, but and then Paul says, don't let anybody judge you with regard to the Sabbaths. Okay, so there's obviously some overlap there. But that simple three-point thing there, the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, 
the ceremonial laws, which are the food laws and so on, and then the civil laws, which apply specifically to the nation of Israel. That's a simple way to understand those things. So the great question is for us that we want to know is how does that all apply to us? How does it work for us? The law for the New Testament Christian. Now, the New Testament statements about the Old Testament law are really difficult to harmonize and understand. One reason simply is I use moral, civil, and ceremonial. Your Bible typically says law. doesn't actually break down which one is which, and you've got to kind of read by context how it is. On the one hand, uh, some New Testament statements indicate that under the new covenant, the whole law is done away with. Uh, Romans 6.14, you are not under law. Romans 10 verse 4, the Bible says that Christ is the end of the law. Okay. Now, direct application of all the tabernacle temple worship laws are very clearly excluded because we know we don't gather together and there's a big fire out there and Wes and, and, and uh, George and the guys are out there, out there with the big shovels loading up wood and picking animals and dumping them on top and we listen and smell the burning animal. None of that happens. Are, are we not meeting with God week by week? Well, of course we are. But those laws have been set aside, okay? Uh, food laws. I don't know about you, but I went to Rachel's house for dinner and she made me roast pork and it was really good. And I enjoyed it without a twinge of conscience or guilt at all. But those food laws have been set aside, okay? Uh, Acts 10, Peter says to the Lord, uh, the Lord, you remember the story? Big sheet comes out of the sky. He's in a vision watching. And all these animals, clean and unclean, are all mixed together. And the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, 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 Lord, he says. Uh, By no means, for I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And he begins to figure out there's a picture here and there's, there's something happening and not only does it put aside food laws, but it also tells him the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Praise God, because it came to us too. Uh, Hebrews 8.13 talks about a new covenant. And he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In Hebrews 10.1, he says, for since the law was has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those things it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year speaking about the temple make perfect those who draw near and so those system was done i think it's actually an amazing grace of god although the jews at the time probably would have seen it that way that the temple was destroyed in 70 a.d god was making it absolutely clear Get rid of it. You don't need it anymore. It's done. Okay, and so that was that was one very clear way he was showing that old covenant has been done away with. Uh, Ephesians says that Christ has abolished in His flesh the commandments and regulations that separated Jew from Gentile. It's he, uh, Ephesians two fifteen. Now, some people take that okay, abolishing those things, and they take it to an extreme. Okay. Uh, some folks I love and, and lived and worshipped with for years concluded from those statements that Christians are under no Mosaic laws, not even the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, but they're instead simply under the law of Christ. Where would they get that from? Well, they get it from Galatians 6 verse 2. 
bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. First Corinthians 9 21. This is a complex one. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. It's Paul speaking. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So some have said the law's got nothing to do with us, and they just say, yep, just leave it all behind. No, the Bible doesn't actually say that. On the other hand, the law cannot be altogether invalid since the New Testament affirms its abiding applicability. For example, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And all scripture, as we know, very clearly includes the law. The law is a good chunk of that Old Testament. And I know, I'm like everybody else, right? I have a vow to read through the Bible. Genesis, no problem. Exodus, no problem. Leviticus, and you stop, right? Because it's just like, you know, so-and-so doing this, and sprinkle the blood, and it goes on and on and on. You think, oh, my goodness, what is all this about? How does this affect me? I mean, I don't have to do any of these sacrifices. But when we understand what the New Testament says about the law, we realize there is a very good reason why we still have it in our Bibles. And there's a great use for it if it's used, as Paul says, properly. And we'll see that in a bit. Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If you were out on Wednesday night, we were talking about this a little bit. Um, Matthew 5, 70 to 20. Uh, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people mistakenly think that Jesus came and kind of pushed aside all the law and made it really easy, the law of love. In actual fact, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he didn't do that. He made the law. If it was here before, he made it way up here. He made it radically more difficult. You say, why would Jesus do that? Well, there's a purpose in the law, and we'll get there as we move on. The law is the embodiment of truth that instructs us in what is excellent. Uh, we read Romans 2 beyond that part I was thinking about. In Romans 2, 17 and 19, the Bible says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and this is what I want to get to. Approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. What he's saying is the law is the embodiment of all God's truth there. So it's not to be done away with. It's to be understood as how it applies to us. Uh, the law is holy and spiritual. Paul says in Romans 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin? And he uses the strongest emphatic negative. No way. Uh, it's mekanoita in the Greek, and it basically means by no possible way. Yet, 
if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced to me all kinds of covetousness. And yet he says at the end of that same passage, I delight in the law of God in my inner man because it teaches me what sin is. Okay. The law is good. Uh, it's, if it's used properly, it's not opposed to the promises of God. First uh, Timothy 1 8. Uh, Paul is writing to his young friend, the pastor Timothy in Ephesus. And he says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or if one uses it wisely. So there's obviously a good reason for the law. Uh, Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. And this is a massively key statement for us to understand how the law affects us. This is Roman, uh, Galatians 3.21. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But he doesn't say it can. He says if it could. And the implication is it couldn't. And there lies the great problem. So faith doesn't make the law void. And uh, the law, at least a part of it, rem remains authoritative for the New Testament believer. So I want to get to the end of this. What is the purpose of the law for the Christian for today? And I'll give you three things. Number one, the law prepares sinners for the gospel. Number two, the law points massively and beautifully and comprehensively to Christ. And thirdly, the law is a guide for Christian living. So first of all, the law prepares the sinner for the gospel. We believe that no one can receive salvation by works of the law because no one can perfectly keep the law. The, the Old Testament Jews prove that over and over again. And you even try. Uh, we're talking about if somebody could actually manage to do that, if if dear Irene could go and keep all the law, every single one of them perfectly for her entire lifespan, would she still be accepted into heaven? And the answer is no. Why? Because Irene was born with a sin nature, and that has to be dealt with. So the law can't make us right with God. What the law does is says, it's like that, uh, you go to the amusement park, you know, and you see the sign, you get a ride on this ride, and they have these rides that go you know, up, straight up for 300 feet, and then drop you straight down again at death-defying speeds and throw you over loops. And, you know, and you're thinking, and the parents, you know, look at this thing with the little kids going, I don't want to go up there. And the little kid is like, he wants to go. And he gets to the front of the line, there's a big sign that says, you must be this tall to ride this ride, Right. And the little kid's standing there, and he's trying, he wants to get, he's trying to pull his hair up so he can make it tall enough. The law does exactly that. The law says you must be this right with God, but the law can do nothing to make you that. It just says this is the line, and you, if you don't cross it, you can't go. So the law prepares the sinner for the gospel. We know that not a person Sorry, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. It's impossible because violation of any one part of the law makes us guilty of the whole law. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of the whole thing. Right? So the law prepares us by saying you can't be holy with God. You can't have a relationship with God because you simply can't match God's requirements. 
the law demands perfect righteousness and promises life in return. But the law cannot make one inherently righteous before God. The law can only recognize what is righteous behavior and attitude before God and condemn all behavior that is not righteous before God. So the law was meant to be a tutor, a schoolmaster. Whenever I think of that, I think of Miss Smith with her big blackboard ruler. And I was a little kid in Barrick Primary School. Miss Smith used to carry one of those big, long yardstick things, you know, and whack on the backside if you didn't get it right. That's the law, a schoolmaster to make us understand what it means to or bring us to Christ. How does the law bring us to Christ? Well, first, the law makes the sinner conscious, conscious of his sin. Uh, for by the works of a law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Uh, Romans 7, 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law said, you shall not covet. And you know what happens, right? It's like telling your little son, you know, like, that, don't cross that line. And what does a son do? I heard this great story. Um, this pastor uh, fellow had a little girl, and he took her to the hockey game in Canada. And in those days, you know, kids could run all over the arena, and it would be safe and no big problem. It was kind of family fun. And there was a line right down the bottom close to the ice rink. Uh, anybody here ever watch ice hockey on TV? Yep, few of you. Those guys, when they come in on the skates and they hit the boards, the the crack you hear when it hits the board actually shakes the building some. They hit it so hard. And this guy knew that if his little girl managed to get too close to the ice, she'd get hit. And so he took her all over the arena. He said, you can go here, you can go here, you can go here, you can go here, you can go here. And the little girl's like, okay, okay, okay. And he took her all the way down to the very front of the arena, and there's a line where the, the players would come by, and just beyond that is where the ice started. And he said, you see this line right here? Yeah. You may not go on the other side of that line. And so he took her back up to their seats, and you're all laughing. So what happened, right? He sits down, and she jumps up. She goes out to the end, straight down to the bottom. She walks up to the line, and she turns around and looks at her daddy, and picks one big foot and goes like this, right over the line, right? As soon as he said, don't cross that line, she did it. Yeah. We all have kids or no kids who do exactly the same thing, right? That's what the law does. The law said, don't covet. What's the first thing we do? I want, right? The law displayed that we are, it made us aware of our sin. Why is that a good thing? We need to understand that we are sinners to realize that we need a Savior. If you were listening uh, this morning. The law provokes and incites rebellion against God. The law came in, in Romans 5 verse 20. This is a tough one. Romans 5 20. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Uh, Romans 7, 19, did that which is good, law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through the what is good, that's the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, I like the old King James here, and through the commandment, sin might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, we're all sinners. We understood that. 
right? Our conscience convicts us even before we can speak or talk or react. We, we still we lie. We hide our hands if we take something, all those sort of things. And the law comes in and it makes that sinful nature exceedingly sinful. It sets the standard so much higher and shows us that we can't meet it. Okay, that's the law's purpose. The law makes one fully accountable for God, before God, for the violation of all God's moral requirements. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What Paul is saying is every single person who drew a breath was held accountable to God. They've all sinned against the law. Either the law that's in stone tablets or in a book or the law that's written in your heart. If you're Jew, you have it on stone tablets and on your heart. If you're Gentile, you have it on your heart. And of course, we have the word of God before us. So the law makes one fully accountable. So nobody will stand before God and say, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I heard this other day. Um, some very primitive cultures have gone in there and done some studies on cultures and what sort of things those cultures base their worldview on. And they all, every culture, doesn't matter how primitive or how remote and how far removed from the gospel, they all have some understanding of right and wrong. What's really funny is they say, so give us some examples in your, uh, your uh, ancient culture. What's right and wrong for you? Well, we're not supposed to sleep with somebody else's wife, adultery. We're not supposed to lie. And, you know, if we steal, then, you know, we get in trouble. And, and it's funny. All the things that are in the, in the law of God, they all come up. And it's like amazing how high the incidence of those same basic rules showing what the law of God was written on their hearts. Right. So when they stand before God, will they have an answer? God will say, I gave you the law written on your heart. I gave you a conscience. What did you do on the basis of that? Now, that is incredibly hard in some senses to understand. Because that means that when they stand before God, will they have an excuse? We didn't know the name of Jesus. We don't have an excuse. And I would argue, actually, they don't have an excuse because they have the law of God written on their hearts. And God will judge them in righteousness and holiness and truth based on what they did and how they responded to their conscience. That brings all of the world accountable before God. The law shows their sinners the need of a mediator. The law prepares us for the gospel so that we could realize, we get to that point when you realize there's no other way to be saved unless God simply gives it to you. The law prepares you by showing you you cannot make it, you cannot earn it, you cannot do it. There's nothing. But the law in its marvelous comprehensibility, comprehensiveness, sorry, shows us that there is a way that one, an innocent, spotless victim can die on behalf of another. Of course, that's the ceremonial law. It's all the laws about the worship of Israel. And so that all prefigures and shouts that Christ will one day come. I'm taking too long to get through this. Moving on. Uh, we remember that salvation ultimately is a gift. The law points to Christ. The moral and civil laws reflect the righteousness of Christ. All the cultic laws, all the laws requiring holiness for the people of Israel back in those days, they emphasize and shout that God is a holy God and Christ is a holy God. The tabernacle, 
you pull back and you look at a, a top-down big picture of the tabernacle and what you see, if you think about how Israel is camped all the way around that tabernacle, and it shouts to us that God is in the midst of his people. And the tabernacle shouts, one day Christ will come. Uh, John chapter 1, put back there for a second. John chapter 1. Uh, he says, yeah, John 1.14 is a well-known verse. You probably remember it without even turning there. The Bible says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Anybody know what the King James says about? You got that Harold in front of you? The King James of John 1.14? It should have the word. Do you have it? It was dwelt. Okay. In the... That's the one I'm looking for. Yeah. In some of the versions and some of the older versions and the original language, the word is actually, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Isn't that amazing? It just shows you, hey, you know what? The Old Testament, it was shouting and saying, look, there's going to be one coming and he will dwell amidst his people. Uh, we talk about the when Christ died, the veil, the temple was torn in two and now man can go in. I think that's true, but I think the other is also equally true. Not only can man come in, but God can come out and be amongst his people in the flesh, which he was in the person of Christ, right? If you stop and think about it, every single moment of Christ's life on this earth, right up until he died and was risen again, was a massive display of grace because God was walking amongst men and women and they were in their sin. and there was no hope, right? I mean, they shouldn't have been there. They should have been annihilated by his presence. He was the holy God. And in grace, he walked amongst his people and allowed his presence to be among them. The tabernacle shouts about Christ dwelling amongst us. The sacrifices foreshadow the sacrifice of Christ. They point to the many benefits that Christ gained for us on the cross. The priesthood anticipates Jesus' high priestly function. The, the penalties of the law anticipate Christ's judgment. The unconditional destruction of the Canaanites anticipates the judgment of hell. All those Old Testament texts are pointing forward to what Christ is going to do. The law is just shouting that Christ is coming. Christ is going to do these things for real. They're all pictures. Having said all that, it is 7 o'clock. Uh, there's a whole lot more I can give you, but I don't want to go there. Before I go any further, we won't go any further. Before we wrap it up, Anybody got a comment or a question or I know I've given you a whole lot. So, yes, sir. Yeah. Great question. My answer would be probably the moral law as in the Ten Commandments, because those ceremonial and civil laws had very much to do with the Old Testament people of God, the civil laws very much just to do with the nation of Israel. And once the nation of Israel ceased to exist, those laws no longer had effect over those people. However, I'll add this, those other laws provided principles which modern-day jurisprudence still draws on Old Testament legal principles. Uh, there's a whole section in my notes I just skipped over for the sake of time that the New Testament writers draw on those Old Testament ceremonial and civil laws as illustrations and principles for how we live and function as a church. 
Uh, the ox shall not be muzzled while he treads out the grain. What's it talking about? Uh, Paul actually uses it, combines it with a quote from Jesus when he writes to 1 Timothy and says, this is a reason why you pay pastors, because you don't want to muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. Granted, the ox analogy is somewhat accurate i'll give you that much but he drew an old testament principle and you can see if you went through the new testament epistles you'll see uh paul james and peter all pull up old testament ceremonial laws as principles for how the church should live and function in the new testament so even though the laws specifically don't apply anymore the principles which they teach certainly do does that make sense yeah, so the law written on the heart, I would say, is very simply would be the moral law of God. Yeah. Amen to that. That's right. And that's, that's the whole thing. Christ is the end of the law, and it means this. The law no longer has an effect on me. It no longer has a demand on me. Think of it this way. Uh, before we were saved, we were in Adam. Okay, we had the sin nature. We were responsible to, you know, respond to our conscience and so on. When we are in Christ, it's just like Adam's disobedience. We were in Adam, and when he disobeyed, his disobedience became our disobedience. When we're in Christ, his perfect, flawless obedience to the demands of the law became our Perfect, flawless obedience to the demands of the law. His death for us met all the demands of the law against us. And because we're in Christ, we're saved. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you're racing down the highway in your car, you know, and the, the, those infamous red and blue lights come up behind you and you pull over and the guy pulls over with you and, you know, this is not an ambulance. This is one of the city's finest, and they're about to write me a little piece of blue paper. That means I get to pay about 200 bucks towards the city because I've been clocked doing some, you know, 101 in a 100 zone or something like that. You're all laughing. It's all happened to you at least once. And what do you do? You get the little piece of paper in the mail. You owe 150 or 250 bucks. You walk out of the thing and you pay the 250, and everything's taken care of. You've paid the penalty of the law. Does that mean that I can now turn around and speed up and down the Monash Freeway as much as I like? And if the cop pulls me over, I say, no, 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 I've already paid the penalty. I can speed. Is that what it means? No. <laughs> so the way you think about the New Testament, the law and the, and the moral law is I'm not under the law as in under its demands. But. Christ has met all those demands, and how I now live, I strive to please the Lord Jesus who died to save me. So how I live is now massively changed. I want to please him. So when the law says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, well, Christ has already paid the penalty. So I can have other gods, right? No, of course not. Uh, you know, the Bible says that don't make any graven images. Well, it doesn't matter. Christ has died. Me. I can make other graven images, right? No, of course not. So those laws, we're not under the demands of the law, but the law now becomes, in a sense, we strive to keep it, not because we're under the curse of it, not because we're trying to keep it as a covenant of works. Now we're trying to keep it as an expression of love 
for the Savior who died. Uh, I promise I'll quit with this. Uh, there's a story told years ago. I heard a uh, lady was married to the, the cruelest, harshest husband you can imagine. And he had a list of demands every single day. She had to, you know, uh, clean out the drain, the sink. She had to sweep the yard. She had to vacuum the grass. She had to do all the, and he had a huge long list of demands he placed on her every single day. And she just struggled and groaned under this massive demands that this mean husband put on her. One day he died, sadly. And uh, not long after she married another man. And she married this man and she was in love with this man. I mean, the light shone out of this guy, you know, and every day she would get up and in love for him, she would go and clean the gutters and in love for him, she would clean out the drain, the sink and in love for him, he, she organized the sock drawer. And, and all of a sudden one day she came across one of those old lists and she was looking at it and she said, isn't it amazing? I used to do all these things under the grinding curse of an old relationship. And now in love for my new husband, I not only do these things, I do a whole bunch more. Uh, what we haven't got yet, and I'm going to come back to it next week, because it's definitely worth looking at, is that the believer through the Holy Spirit keeps the righteous requirements of the law because of the Spirit of God in us. All right. So you never want to think of it as the law is completely done away with because the law has so much to inform us and teach us and display Christ to us. You never want to think of the law as, uh, you know, I don't care about lying or adultery or theft or murder or whatever, because the law is still there. It still has a demand on us. We don't keep it in order to be right with God. We are right with God because of what Christ has done and we keep it out of love for him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Comments, questions, disagreements. If you if you think I've misstated it, please speak up. Amen to that. Yeah, that's right. Not under law, but under grace. But in grace, we strive to keep the law. Put it that way. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Because Christ has fulfilled all those penal requirements. Death. I mean, it's a it's a demand we could not possibly keep. And even like if lovely Irene was managed to keep all the laws, the whole context of her life, it still doesn't make her right with God because it doesn't deal with the fundamental problem, which is the nature of sin that's in all of us. Christ's righteousness has to be applied to us so that when we stand in heaven, we stand in Christ in the presence of God. That's why I said this morning, our one claim, our one I hate this word, but ticket into heaven is I have Jesus. Christ died for me. That's my plea. Nothing else counts for anything. Yeah. Go, Jeff. No, absolutely not. No. Christ's works make him the perfect substitute. His death satisfies the law. Uh, one of the brilliant statements in Isaiah 53, 11, 
uh, in the old King James, he shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So the anger, the insult that our breaking the law effected upon God, Christ has done that away with an insult. It's something that, that we, in our modern gospel preaching, we often forget that it isn't just legal demands like a speeding fine. It's something so much more than that. It's the fact that God was offended and angry and righteously indignant because our sin isn't just breaking, you know, don't do this, because the don't do this is a reflection of his holy character. So when I go out and lie, steal, whatever, I'm not just breaking a written command. I'm actually insulting God as surely as if I spat in his face. That's the extent of it. Yeah. Other comments or questions? Yes. Yeah. Yo, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Amen. Uh, that that is a uh, let's let's read it and we'll close. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, but it isn't just Adam's fault. I got we got to add that. Like you just said a second ago. We're not just sinners because we were dumped into it by Adam. We picked up the baton of sin from Adam and we ran with it with all of our strength. And we became sinners by practice and habit and desire beyond that. But back to the verse. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. An amazing truth. And you get through all this and I go back to it again. The more I study this the more it just comes down to me, the grace of God, God's grace in saving us. There's nothing that we did that merited God saving us. It is just grace. And that's all. Amen. Well, let's give thanks. There is some food out there. So we'll give thanks and enjoy some pizza. Loving heavenly father. Again, we come before you and father. We, we want to thank you. Oh God, for your law. The righteous, high, holy demands of an infinitely holy God that you placed upon us. Father, we thank you that in Adam we were all made sinners. And the law proclaimed and declared and displayed to us the sinfulness of our sin. But Father, we thank you. We praise you, O God, that in the ceremonial aspects of the law we see Christ promised. And Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus has come. He has suffered and died. He has met all of the law's demands on each of us. And Father, we can sit here in this room. We can sit in the very presence of a living God, enjoying the fact that we have been made sons and daughters. The law's demands are met. But Father, we pray too. We pray, O oh God, that we would be quick 
to strive to keep the law, not that we might earn favor with you, but that we might please you as sons and daughters in a right relationship with God. Father, we thank you. We thank you, O God, for such a salvation, for grace so great, so rich, so wonderful. Father, we pray that we would never, ever take these things for granted. But, Father, we would we walk in them, live these things out. And, Father, never cease to go tired of praising and thanking our God for the salvation that we have. Lord, we thank you again for a wonderful day together in worship and in, around the word of God. Father, thank you for the Savior who died for us. We give you thanks now, too, Lord, for a time of fellowship, Lord, for some pizza and some, some pop or drink. Lord, we thank you for that. We ask you, oh God, for your blessing, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.